0: Okay, so good evening, everyone. We are starting the new book of Shemot, uh, second book of the Torah. We began it on Shabbat. Obviously, there's a transition, significant transition in this book from stories about the Avot to stories about the uh, about the the nation as a whole. But even then, we, especially in the first parasha, we focus uh, a great deal on Moshe Rabbeinu as an individual. That kind of fades to the background, I'd say, as we go to... Further on in the story, the focus is um, more on the collective and, and less on Moshe Rabbeinu as an individual, except insofar as he's leading everybody. But in the beginning, definitely we see his birth. And he's one of the few characters, actually, in the Torah that we follow him from birth. Um, obviously, we don't speak about the birth, really, of Noah, of, of Avram. Yitzchak's birth is mentioned, but the stories about him are later, and, uh, and the same is true of Yaakov, maybe with the exception of the, uh, the selling of the birthright, but even there, he's already 40 years old. So the young uh, life of the Avot is largely a mystery to us, um, and we, we mainly focus on their activities beyond that. But with Moshe Rabbeinu, we see him prior to his career, you could say, as the prophet, prior to his career, at least as a leader of Am Yisrael. And I would like to just focus uh, on that aspect. I think in the past I focused on his initial uh, approach to par'o and how that did not succeed and what the significance of that is. <clears throat> I wanted to focus this year a little bit on the personality of Moshe Rabbeinu. And is there anything in Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, early uh, attitudes or behavior that indicate that he's destined for greatness? Now, obviously, there is this remarkable story of Moshe Rabbeinu almost dying, obviously, because, the, um, because of the decree of Par'o that all of the male children should be killed. And his mother puts him in a little boat, in a little, well, in a little basket, and his sister watches from afar, and he's discovered by the daughter of Par'o who takes him in. This, from the very beginning, is already uh, miraculous in nature and suggests that Moshe Rabbeinu is destined for something great. Or is it? Uh, We can look at it from many different points of view. Obviously, the simple take on it is that Moshe Rabbeinu is uh, born into a special mission. But there might be another aspect to it, another element to the story that is overlooked and that might not make recourse necessarily to divine intervention or to miracles. Let's take a look at the common denominator between the characters in the story of Shemot that are highlighted in their pro-social behavior, we could say, in their proactive behavior, and the characters who seem to fade into the background as uh, just submitting or um, giving in, surrendering to the decrees of Par'o. So from the very outset, Par'o has to convince his people to participate in his diabolical plan, First uh, to enslave the Jews, then to throw their babies into the river. <clears throat> but he, ha- he attempts to recruit the two midwives to his side. And these two midwives, Shifran Pu'ah, resist the orders of Par'o, but make an excuse. They say, it says that they feared God, and therefore they would not enact the terrible instructions of Par'o. They would not adhere to the terrible instructions of Par'o to kill the male children, <clears throat> But they made an excuse They said, well, you know, the Jewish women They are very, very capable of of giving birth They're so good at giving birth That they don't really need any help By the time we get there, the baby's already born And there's no way to secretly, surreptitiously uh, Do away with the child Because at that point, Paro was still trying to do everything In an underhanded way, in an indirect way He was trying to uh, stop the population growth of the Jewish people By enslaving them, uh, demoralizing them and secretly killing the male children But he, it wasn't open It wasn't an open campaign against the male children Until later when he said Just throw them into the river Because his attempt to uh, To gain the support or the help Of the midwives was unsuccessful So he had to At first he was trying to do it secretly The Ramban talks about that, and, uh, that, it, that that's, that's the explanation of why At the end of the parasha When Moshe Rabbeinu has uh, created An even further rift Between paro And the Jewish people, because he has put pressure on Perot to allow them to go on a holiday, that um, that the Jews were very upset with Moshe and say you've now put a sword in their hands to kill us meaning really they would have liked to kill us anyway they really would like to slaughter us but they don't feel like they can get away with it so therefore they try all these indirect ways of diminishing our population and lowering our morale but now that you've put us at odds with Paro you've put us in even further danger because Paro was careful politically about what he'd be willing to openly do against the Jews apparently so in any case, these two women stand up against Paro. Of course, they fabricate the reason why they are unsuccess—they quote-unquote are unsuccessful in killing the male children. Really, they are refusing to do so. And this Shifran Pu'ah, um, let's put them aside for a second because according to the simple meaning of the text, these are two women that either Jewish or non-Jewish, it's not even clear, but they were the midwives of the Jews. And then we look ahead to the next story, the next, uh, the next episode, which is the episode of Moshe's mother, which, who is not yet named in the text. She's not named in the text until next week's parashah, or this coming week's parashah, Vaira. Her name is given to us as Yochevet, but we see that she was not willing also to submit to the decree of Paro. Oh to throw her child into the river. So therefore she hid him for three months and then placed him into a basket and then put him on the river to float down. And his sister, Miriam, was also unwilling to accept this decree and this uh, terrible fate that, was, that her new bo- newborn brother was being uh, uh, exposed to. And therefore she stood aside and waited to see if there was any way in which she could intervene to ensure the safety of the child. Now, interestingly, the rabbis say in the Midrash that the parents of Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to have any further children after Aaron and Miriam, who are older. And they said that, you know, what's the point? And you hear this, uh, you hear this line uh, repeated nowadays uh, in the modern world by some, some elements of our society. Oh, you know, why would I want to bring... The uh, bring a child into such a terrible world well in those circumstances it made a lot of sense why would you want to bring a child into a world where they're going to be enslaved where they have no future they have no hope and so on and so therefore, they were going to give up on having children and they separated from each other. And that's why it says, it talks about them becoming remarried and then having a child. It sounds as if it's their first child, but it's not their first child. It says a man from the house of Levi went and he married a daughter of Levi. It's talking about Amram marrying Yocheved, but, what, but they already had two children, they already had Aaron and Miriam. Obviously, Miriam, the, Moshe is not the first, he's the youngest actually. So what does that show you? That shows you that they had separated because they didn't intend to continue building their family. And so that's what it says in the Torah. That's what is suggested by the Torah, that they were separated and they reunited. What's the implication of that? So the Midrash draws this out further and says, you see from this, that they were really not interested in having any further children. But um, Miriam went to them and said, you know, What you're doing is worse than what Paro is doing because Paro is only decreeing to kill the male children, but you're decreeing that you shouldn't have any children at all. So in a way you're worse because you're going to wipe out, you're going to stop all procreation. There won't be any hope. There won't be any future. And, uh, And so therefore they reunited and they had Moshe. So, what is this Midrash really indicating to us? What is this Midrash really suggesting to us? It's suggesting to us that Miriam is very proactive. It's suggesting to us that Yocheved and Amram are very proactive. And even to the point that, as hopeless as the situation seemed, that putting a baby in a basket and putting that baby in the river would do anything positive, there was the possibility, there was the glimmer of hope that maybe somebody would see this baby. And take this baby under their care Would feel bad Would see a baby floating down the river And take care of the baby And lo and behold The daughter of Paro was coming down Saw this baby And decided to take him in as her own And that was Moshe So you can look at the story Of course there is the divine element here This is all fitting into God's plan But God works As I've said many times in our parasha Through the actions The wise, principled actions Of great people of Tzaddikim And in this case, these righteous people said, we're not just going to be passive in the situation. We're not just going to accept the circumstances that our child is going to be killed, but we're going to do everything that we can to try to see to it that maybe the situation can be, something can be salvaged here. And so the mother, after hiding him for three months, puts him in the basket, puts the basket in the river and the reeds, and, um, and, the, uh, and and uh, Miriam standing by the side is waiting to see if there's any way she can intervene. So again, she's on top of things. She's very proactive, not passive and sees the daughter of Parot taking an interest in this baby immediately considers, well, what would the possibility, what would the potential reasons for not wanting to take this baby under her care be and one of them of course would be who's going to nurse the baby who's going to help me take care of this baby and raise this baby since this baby is not mine and so therefore Miriam goes to address that issue by saying maybe I can call for you a wet nurse from among the Jews of course she brings her own mother who is also the mother of the baby but without telling that to to uh, the daughter of Par'o And the daughter of Par'o makes a, de- a deal Not only that the mother of Moshe unwittingly That the mother of Moshe should be his own wet nurse But also that she pays her for that service The main point though is That uh, the, the main point is that uh, The actors in the story are, are resisting The evil decree of Par'o And are doing their best to live according to the principles of Hashem's wisdom and ethics and morals and not simply give up their personal responsibility here. They're, on the contrary, they're going above and beyond. And if we look back to Shifran Pu'ah, the two midwives that Paro tried to recruit in his diabolical plan... These midwives also are resisting against the uh, what is being pressed upon them by the authority of Par. Oh, they fear God They feared God and therefore refused to do it. Again, these are people who are standing up for principle rather than submitting to the dictator, uh, submitting to the whims of the dictator. And what do the rabbis say? Fascinating point that the rabbis make in the Midrash. Maybe this is the reason that the rabbis say that Shifra and Puah were none other than Yocheved and Miriam. Perhaps because the rabbis saw this similar character in Miriam and Yocheved, that they were strong personalities who, were, who based their action on principle and on, a, on fear of God. Therefore, they said these two, Shifran Pu'am, must just be code names also for Miriam and Yocheved, who are women who were so vigilant in trying to take care of and protect the Jewish children, even against all odds. So we already see people who are dissatisfied, who are unwilling to accept the status quo, who are refusing to just make peace with evil decrees that are imposed upon them by a wicked authority with his own agenda, and that they see that there's something wrong with this, that this this can't be so, this is not something that we should just sit back passively and, um, and, and accept. Now along comes Moshe Rabbeinu, and I think in this context we can actually appreciate the emergence of Moshe Rabbeinu from a totally different standpoint, because And again, I'm not saying that the events that happened at the river that Pat Paro happened to come down just at that time and see the baby and want to adopt the baby was not divinely orchestrated, but the fact of the matter is that it was the free choice exercised by Yocheved, the mother, and by Miriam, the sister, that made sure that that opportunity wasn't lost Wasn't squandered That the opportunity that Bad Paro came down to the river Perhaps even Yochebed knew that the daughter of Paro Or some women would be coming down to the river at that time And was hoping, against all odds That they would discover this child But the point is that they, they acted decisively and proactively To attempt to secure the best future They didn't sit back And along comes Moshe Rabbeinu And what's the first story we hear about Moshe Rabbeinu Who was pulled out of the water Ki menamai mishitiu he was pulled out of the water by somebody's initiative. What's the first thing he sees? He sees the suffering of the Jewish people and he sees an Egyptian man beating an Israelite, a Jewish man. And he turns both ways and he sees that there's nobody there. And he strikes the Egyptian and he covers him in the dust and he covers him in the uh, sand. So, this again is an example of someone who's not willing to simply accept. The status quo. He's not willing to accept the injustice that's being perpetrated against innocent victims. He's certainly not going to tolerate a murder committed right in front of his eyes, and so therefore he intervenes and he saves the person. In the very next episode, of course, we see that again. He sees two Jews fighting, and he says, "Why are you hitting each other? Why are you striking your brother, your friend?" And they challenge him back and say, "Who made you? Shofet aleno." Who appointed you to be a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moshe Rabbeinu realized that what he had done against the Egyptian had come to the uh, uh, had come become public, and that his life was in danger, was in jeopardy, and therefore he ran away. He he fled uh, to avoid the wrath of Paro, who indeed was interested in killing him at that point because he was resisting against. The you know the the uh, Paroz regime and and his law and his um, and his authority. So Moshe Rabbeinu is following a legacy of his family and uh, in standing up against injustice, standing up against forces of evil that many people just accept and tolerate and uh, learn to live with. Moshe Rabbeinu was not going to be that type of person. Just like his mother and his sister were not that type of person. And in fact. The Rambam says and the Midrashim say also and elaborate on the point that in Mitzrayim the only group that was really faithful to God throughout the entire period of the enslavement in Egypt was the Levi'im. The Levi'im were known for having a passionate and proactive commitment to God, to service of Hashem. This is reflected, of course... In them becoming Levi'im and Kohanim, but also in their reaction to the sin of the golden calf, among other things. That they were always the ones to stand up. They were always the ones not to be willing to tolerate evil or injustice. And here we have Moshe Rabbeinu following their footsteps, sees something that is not right, sees something that is evil, that is wicked. And, nevertheless, and it is not willing to look the other way, even though it places him... In danger. Now he tried to minimize that danger by making sure nobody witnessed him committing the crime. But of course, well, crime—it was a crime against Paro. But doing the right thing, he didn't want anyone to see him doing the incriminating action. Um, and uh, and so he looked both ways. But at the end, in the end, the word got out, and he ended up uh, he ended up being uh, noticed and having his uh, having a price on his head uh, from Paro. So he had to flee. Now, when he comes to. Uh, When he comes now to Midian, and I mentioned this on Shabbat in my speech on Shabbat, but I'm just bringing it up again because it completes the puzzle here. It completes the picture that uh, when he comes to Midian, you would expect an ordinary person to now say, you know what? I tried to be a good guy. Nice guys finished last, obviously. I stood up for the rights of the Jew against the Egyptian. And what did he do? Instead of keeping it quiet, he told people about it put my life in danger because remember the only person who possibly could have known about that Moshe killed the Egyptian would have been the person that he saved because he had looked around and made sure that there was nobody else there. The only person who could have possibly known would have been the person he saved and yet that person rather than being grateful to him rather than feeling a sense of loyalty and wanting to protect him actually told people about it and put him in danger. So Moshe Rabbeinu was very jaded or had the potential to be very jaded about that. The Midrash says that when he said, Now the matter is known, meaning when he heard the Jew say to him, do you want to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? He said, now the matter is known. So it doesn't just mean that he realized that it was known that he killed the Egyptian. He said, I, he realized, the Midrash says he realized why the Jewish people were being enslaved because they were so disloyal, because they were so ungrateful. Because even when you tried to lend them a helping hand, they rejected it and they, they turned you into the authorities. Uh, and so Moshe Rabbeinu could have been very jaded by that. He could have really felt that he should abandon his uh, principles of justice and, and, and keep himself out of trouble. And yet he comes to Midian and he sees the seven daughters of Yitro. And these seven daughters of Itro are coming. It says they come to uh, they come to draw water for their sheep, the sheep of their parent of their father, and they fill up the troughs with the water, and the shepherds came and they chased away The daughters of Yitro Why they would do that is not exactly clear But uh, for whatever reason um, They were mistreated uh, Regularly By the um, By the uh, shepherds in the area When they would come to try to take care of their sheep And Moshe saw this He saw these bullies come And attack these women So therefore Moshe Rabbeinu gets up And he saves them from the attack of these male shepherds who are harassing them. So this is a fascinating thing that that Moshe Rabbeinu, just having recovered from the last time he got involved in business that was not his own in order to stand up for the right thing, he does it again. He stands up for the daughters of Yitro. He doesn't know who Yitro is. He doesn't know who... uh, uh, He doesn't have any connection with them. He doesn't have any reason to inject himself into the situation. It's none of his business, as we would say today. And yet he, stand, and he just recently suffered rejection and even having to leave his home and flee for his life because of an intervention that he made into somebody else's problem and trying to address an injustice on his own in a vigilante way. And yet he does it again. He doesn't care about the consequences that might befall him. In other words, he stands up for principle and he doesn't become frustrated or Uh, demoralized or uh, he doesn't feel in any way uh, dissuaded from his path of justice just because one person or in one situation it backfired on him, in one situation it wasn't appreciated, it was rejected. It doesn't make him discouraged. He continues on and when he sees somebody suffering at the hands of a persecutor, somebody suffering at the hands of a bully, being treated in an unjust manner, He's not going to take it. He's going to stand up. He's going to in, intervene and he's going to change things. And that's what he does. And so when these girls come home to their father, they say to, he says to them, how did you get home so quickly? Normally, apparently, seems like every time they would go to take to uh, water the sheep, to give the sheep water, they would, be, they would face these um, shepherds who would attack them and harass them and drive them away. And, uh, and so Yitroh was really surprised that his daughters came home so early and they said you know this Egyptian man an Egyptian man saved us from the hands of the Roim the male shepherds meaning that this was a known thing that they would bother them every day he also drew the water for us and even gave water to the sheep in other words he didn't just stop the aggressors he didn't just make sure that the bullies left them alone. He actually then went out of his way to take care of them, to help them, to pour the water for them, to be a gentleman. And a bal chesed, showing his sense of kindness and generosity towards these women. And uh, what does Yitro say? He doesn't say, who does this guy think he is? There's an Egyptian coming to Midian and meddling in our local affairs. That is none of his business and he should keep to himself and he should get out of here. He doesn't say that. He says, Vayomer benotav he said to his daughters Where is this man? Why did you abandon this person? Why did you leave this man Who uh, was clearly a great person you know, deserving of being at the very least Invited over for dinner Go back to the well And tell him to come over for dinner And he does So Moshe Rabbeinu ends up Staying with this person he troll and he marries the daughter of Yitro And he has a son But the, the interesting thing here Is that Moshe Rabbeinu If you look at the contrast And I think I've noted it before The difference between the reception of Moshe Rabbeinu By Yitro and the reception by his fellow Jews The fellow Jews say hey Don't meddle, don't get involved Don't insert yourself here, don't do us any favors, keep quiet, keep a low profile, we don't wanna cause any more trouble than we already have and so on. And they even turn him in to the authorities. And this is one of the things that, uh, if you read books on government and politics, you'll see, um, especially the ancients that thought about politics and saw all kinds of different forms of government and studied them, the ancient philosophers would say, that one of the strategies of a dictator, and by the way, it's something that if the best example of it today is probably in North Korea, if you're looking for a good, um, a good example of this kind of thing, that, the, that a dictator will always sow um, dissent and, and distrust among his subjects. In other words, he doesn't want people to trust one another, and he wants to encourage people to tell on each other. That's the best situation for a dictator because if he encourages people to inform on one another, nobody will trust each other and the, the people who are informing, in other words, if anybody is plotting against the dictator, he'll hear from someone, from an informant, who will be rewarded, of course, and will that way curry favor with the dictator. Meanwhile, nobody trusts each other enough ever to conspire against the dictator, because you never quite know if the person that you're conspiring with or plotting with is really on the side of the dictator and is going to tell on you and get you in trouble. So there is a, there's an advantage to an evil dictator to have people set against one another, to have people not... Trust one another Not be united And to be informing On each other And that's exactly The kind of culture That, that uh, Par'o had cultivated um, Among the Jews That they were telling On each other They were turning Each other over To the authorities Because when you would Turn someone over To the authorities You would be rewarded And that, that benefited Par'o Both in terms of Getting a steady uh, Line of information And also in Quelling rebellion Or, or uh, preventing rebellion Because nobody would Trust one another enough Among the slaves To ever rebel so that was the attitude of the Jews They rejected Moshe Rabbeinu's call For justice for the slaves Whereas Yitro sees a man of justice A man of chesed A person who doesn't care For whom he is defending justice Or for whom he's doing chesed He simply does it Because it's the right thing to do And Yitro says This is the kind of person That I want to be connected with This is the kind of person That I want to invite over that I appreciate him I don't reject him I don't tell him to get away. I don't tell him to mind his own business. I want to be connected to such a person. And that was Yitro's personality. Yitro is a person of justice. When we come to the parasha Yitro, I think we discussed it last year, actually, in a lot of detail. But uh, So probably last year's recording will include it. But if you study the personality of Yitro, you see that he was an individual who saw justice as the ultimate value. And his percept- he saw God's greatness through God's justice and fairness in dealing with his creation. And, um, and therefore, when he sees a person who stands up for the same thing, he appreciates that person. That's why it says Yitro, the Midrash says about Yitro, and again, this Midrash is found much later. It's found in the Parashah of Yitro. A few weeks from now, we'll see it. It says that Yitro ex- experimented with every religion on earth, every idolatry on earth he experimented with, and he became D- disillusioned with all of it until he discovered the idea of Hashem. And said that this is the true God. This is the true way to go. But he exper- and the, the, and that would explain the midrash is explaining why this Yitro was a persona non grata. Why he was somebody who was treated with such disrespect. His daughters were treated with such disrespect. If he's the kohen, he's the priest of Midian. Why is he treated with such disrespect? The answer is because he was a former priest of Midian. Because he had experimented with the religion and realized it was nonsensical and rejected it. And he was seeking a true religion. He was seeking a religion that, that what bothered him about religion was that religion tends to create Uh, Be preferential Meaning the God of Midian Only loves the Midianim And the God of Amon Protects and loves the people of Amon And the God of Moab Protects and loves the people of Moab So he was seeking a God Who had absolute justice And of course Hashem As the creator of the universe Treats everybody with justice And even though he has a special relationship With the Jewish people He's not less fair um, Towards the Jewish people or in favor of the Jewish people uh, Than uh, anyone else he, tr- he holds us accountable for our behavior Just like he holds everybody else accountable And that impressed Yitro, he liked it but, and, and his chesed is extended to all of his creatures And, and regardless of national uh, You know, their nationality Regardless of uh, anything else about them They're all Hashem's creatures And that attracted Yitro, that idea So Yitro and, and, and Moshe have a connection Have a bond from the outset Moshe Rabbeinu is now in the household Of somebody who appreciates uh, the values of justice, of Chesed, of Tzedek, and Mishpat, which actually are are very Jewish values, really um, they embody a lot of the core of what Judaism is about, and so therefore Moshe Rabbeinu feels more of an affinity for Yitro than he did for his own brethren who were willing to accept and tolerate, and even become, in a way, uh, accomplices in the injustice going on in Egypt, telling on each other to the authorities and things like that. So they became. Uh, you know they lost their uh, their sense of Jewish principles and values to some extent during that servitude. Now it's interesting again that the Midrash says that the Levi'im didn't, were not enslaved in Egypt. The Levi'im were granted Kohanic status; they were granted a priestly religious status even in Egypt. And this would again fit with our sense that the Levi'im had a different mentality, a different quality, a different level of connection to God even in Egypt, and that they never lost that. Um, sense of in- fierce independence They never assimilated in Egypt Like the other Jews unfortunately did Now this is the The next part of the parasha Describes how the king of Egypt died Now there are midrashim that say That he didn't really die Something else happened The simple meaning is That the king of Egypt died And when the king of Egypt died The Jews accepted uh, expected That their servitude would be alleviated somewhat That things would become better They thought oh This harsh Enslavement is only because this paro is so bad Now that he's dead Everything will uh, improve Our circumstances will improve We'll start being treated better Because it was only because of that administration that was a corrupt administration But a better administration will bring better times And fortunately that did not happen And that's why it says That for the first time we see That Ben Yisrael is sighing and crying out From the heaviness of their work And their cry goes up to God from the service this sounds like the first time that the Jews have cried out to God because up till now, they thought it was a political problem. Up till now, they said, ah, this Pharaoh is bad. He's got a vendetta against us. He hates us. He's an anti-Semite, whatever. As soon as he's gone, things will get better, but they didn't get better. And when they realized that the problem was deeper. It was, a, it was an Egyptian problem. It wasn't a problem of just that one Pharaoh, but it was a problem that Uh, had roots that were much deeper and was not going to change by by itself. It wasn't going to change from an internal political change. Then they cried out to God. And then God hears their voice and remembers the covenant and now he's going to dispatch Moshe Rabbeinu to save them. See, but this is another principle and I've mentioned this many times, but every time we go over it, it really bears repeating, which is when does Hashem initiate the salvation of the Jewish people? When they're ready when they're crying out, when they say, you know what, we're tired of being under the thumb of the Egyptians, we're tired of suffering this way, we're tired of being part of this corrupt, materialistic culture, and especially being on the bottom of it, Um, and therefore we're crying out for something better. We're crying out to God. When they cry out to God, now God has somebody to talk to, now if God sends a messenger, the messenger will be listened to. Up till then, they wouldn't have given Moshe Rabbeinu the time of day, but now that, that they are ready, now that they're prepared to listen to his message because they are totally, fully disillusioned with Egypt and they recognize that the situation is not going to fix itself, it's not going to improve on its own, it's not going to be a simple political transition, so now they're looking for God's intervention, they cry out to God and now he sends Moshe Rabbeinu because now Moshe Rabbeinu will have a willing audience. Uh, to hear His message. And, um, and that's an important point in everything, that, if, that in order to uh, receive the blessings of Hashem, we have to be ready for it. We have to be willing to see it. We have to be prepared to use those blessings. We have to be attuned in order to be on the receiving end. If we're not ready, if we're not looking, if we're not listening, if we're not... Prepared, then Hashem is not going to give us those blessings because we won't use them. We won't respond to them the right way. We're not ready for them yet. And this is a principle of tefillah, especially that prayer is about readying ourselves to have the right perspective so we can receive God's blessings. But that's for another time. Now we're sticking with Moshe Rabbeinu's development. There's one more interesting thing I just wanted to point out about Moshe Rabbeinu before we uh, before we conclude. Um, sort of this uh, description of his personality And how he emerged as such a great leader He was, he was walking his sheep uh, in, the, in the Midbar, in the desert and He comes to the mount, mountain of God Which of course is eventually the mountain Where the Torah is going to be given The angel of God appeared to him from the fire From the midst of the bush This is the famous burning bush you saw a burning bush ukal, but this bush did not become consumed by the fire that was lit inside it like a normal bush would. now if you saw something like that you might be intrigued you see a fire consuming a bush but you uh, you don't but, but the bushes I mean there's a, the, the, the bush is on fire but it's totally intact it's not becoming burnt by the fire at all. how could that be? Vayome Moshe Moshe said. Moshe said, I will turn and look at this great wondrous sight. Why is the bush not burning? Why is it not being consumed by the fire? And then it says, Vayar Hashem, kisar lirot. Hashem saw that Moshe turned to look at the bush. And then God calls to Moshe. So we see again that the toas, it adds an entire pasuk here that would seem to be a superfluous pasuk. It just could have told us that Moshe, that, that Moshe saw a burning bush and there was an angel speaking to him from the bush. That's all that we need to know, actually. We don't need to know that he was walking by. He saw a bush that wasn't consumed. He said to himself, why is that not burning? I want to turn and look and investigate that. And then Hashem sees that he's looking, so Hashem speaks to him. So what would have happened if Moshe Rabbeinu didn't bother to look? What if he said, oh, that's interesting and just kept on walking without checking it out? So he wouldn't have heard from God? So the Jewish people wouldn't have been saved? He wouldn't have become the person that he was if he had not decided? In other words, it tells us this internal dialogue of Moshe Rabbeinu as if without that internal dialogue and decision to take a look, a closer look at the bush, Moshe Rabbeinu would never have been spoken to, he wouldn't have received the divine message. What is the point here? What's going on here? We have to hear about the internal dialogue of Moshe, but the answer is this is showing you a quality of Moshe Rabbeinu. And I, I believe the Ralbag in his commentary in the Torah makes this point that it shows you the curiosity of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now you might say, well, that's, uh, you know, curiosity is something for kids, curiosity is something that, uh, that's nice when you're a student in school, but, you know, why is curiosity relevant? Curiosity is relevant because a person who sees that things don't look right, but can then put their head in the sand and keep going, will never bother to, will not be a problem solver. That person is not going to address the things that are out of order, the things that are not working properly. The curiosity of Moshe Rabbeinu is a quality of his intellectual uh, nature, that he sought an understanding of things, and he when he saw that something didn't make sense, he didn't just leave it be, but he investigated and he searched and he, and, and he delved into things until he found the answer. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu is someone who is seeking truth, and he, if he sees something unusual, he wants to investigate it and understand the reason behind it. So that's part of his intellectual ability, his intellectual uh, inclination. But there's something more than that, which is that when, when a person has that inclination, there's another aspect. They ask themselves, does the society, does what's going on in the society make sense? Does what's going on in, in an organization make sense? Does what's going on in a relationship make sense? In other words, they ask themselves questions also on the practical level about whether things make sense. If there's injustice being perpetrated, there's something that doesn't make sense about that. Or if you see that the Jewish people are subjugated and, and, and are, are enduring incredibly. Uh, Horrific persecution And yet they're still surviving They're on fire But they're not consumed There's something to wonder about that Why is that? What is the reason? And what does it mean? So when a person has that That natural tendency To investigate things That don't make any sense This of course is the, is the basis For all Discovery, scientific discovery, is where something doesn't make sense and so a scientist doesn't just let it go. They keep thinking, they keep searching, they keep analyzing, they keep collecting data. They want to find out what is the cause of this, how does it make sense and what's the reason behind it. Every great discovery that was ever made in the history of mankind was because somebody was bothered by something that you might have thought about yourself, anybody might have thought of it, anybody might have noticed the problem, but somebody said, you know what, I noticed the problem and I can't let it go. I need to follow it to its natural conclusion. I need to discover the answer as best as I can. That was Moshe Rabbeinu. So that mentality of seeking truth and not being satisfied with, oh, that's weird, I'll just keep going. But actually saying, hey, wait a second, that's weird and I need to understand why. I need to figure this out. It has to make sense. That is not only an intellectual quality, it's also a moral quality. Because that means that if you see that a moral situation doesn't make any sense You're also going to address it So the reason why I'm saying this is because you see that the love of justice of Moshe Rabbeinu Was similar, was, was connected to his love of truth The love of truth is the desire to understand why things make sense And the love of justice is the desire for the order of things among human beings to make sense, when the way that human beings are treating each other doesn't make sense. is not in accordance with the right principles and the right values and the right ideals. That's another kind of not making sense. And that was what troubled Moshe Rabbeinu and drove him to intervene in situations of injustice and to correct them. And you see the same quality in, uh, for example, Avraham Avinu, that Avraham Avinu, is someone who is obviously seeking knowledge of God and understanding of God but he also wants to see how the actions among people uh, are are make sense or the way that God deals with people uh, makes sense he wants to see that as well and so the uh, and and see that you know to, that injustice to such a person injustice is perversion of truth in the area of action in the area of human life that's what really uh, what, what injustice is. And so Moshe Rabbeinu's love of truth and his love of justice are one. And that love, the same love of justice and love of truth and, and desire to pursue them that his mother had that drove her to say, you know what, I'm not just going to give in. I'm not just going to accept these things that don't make any sense and these laws that make no sense and these decrees that are against every... Uh, sense of morality And every principle of ethics I'm not going to accept this I'm going to resist against it As much as I can And his sister said the same thing And Shifran Pua said the same thing As the midwives In the beginning of the parasha And Moshe Rabbeinu said the same thing In his dealings When he was in Egypt As well as when he Defended the daughters of Yitro From the shepherds All of these cases are uh, A refusal to just accept Things that don't make any sense As the way it is This is just the way it is And so Moshe Rabbeinu is a person who doesn't accept things just the way they are. He's someone who sees how things should be, who wants to understand why things are the way they are. And to the extent that we have the ability in our world to make them better, to bring life in line with the way things are so that life does make sense, so that life is reflective of our principles and our values. Because what is really growth about? What is growth about for a human being? It's about looking at our lives and saying, these are my values. These are my principles that I profess to believe. Is my life actually reflecting those values? Is my life actually um it, it being lived in accordance with those values? Do I say that I, if I say that I believe in in being charitable, am I acting in a charitable way? If I say that I believe in being respectful, do I act in a respectful way? If I say I believe in the value of learning and knowledge, do I spend time pursuing learning and knowledge? Is it something that is, uh, you know, is, uh, born out by the way that I conduct myself or not. And so that's really what a lot of the process of tefillah is about, reflecting on that, and also the process of teshuvah, of repentance is based upon the same. Recognizing areas where our actions, our behaviors, the way that we invest our time uh, is contradictory to uh, the values that we uh, claim to, that we profess and that may be an abstract, an abstract we believe in. But when we look at our own lives, we say, wait a second, I believe X, Y, and Z, but I'm living A, B, and C. I'm not living X, Y, and Z. Why is that? That contradiction, it should bother us. That contradiction would bother somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu, who would, would be dissatisfied with the answer of, that's just the way it is, and would say, there needs to be a way to fix it. There needs to be a way to address it. There needs to be a path towards resolving the dissonance between the ideals that we subscribe to and the behaviors that um, that we are, uh, you know, actually performing. And so this is why I think this, the Torah spends so much time showing us the personality and the character of Moshe Rabbeinu so that we have an understanding of what a genuine leader would be. And it goes even further than that because you see that when Moshe Rabbeinu actually has his confrontation, I wouldn't call it a confrontation, but has his meeting, his encounter is a better word with Hashem. So, uh, he, ha- Hashem reveals himself and says I am Hashem uh, the God of Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov and it says there Vayaster Moshe panav ki Elohim, that Moshe Rabbeinu hid his face because he was afraid to look to gaze upon God now obviously you can't look look at God God can't be seen he's not visible the Rambam explained, actually the Gemara in Masechet B'chot talks about this and there are two different opinions one opinion that says that Moshe Rabbeinu should have looked meaning he could have gained more understanding and he uh, he denied himself that understanding but the the, the, uh, the accepted view the majority view of the rabbis is that this was the right thing that Moshe did and in fact the Rambam makes a very big deal about this in Moran Nevuchim in the Guide for the Perplexed he speaks about this and he emphasizes what an important lesson there is here that in the pursuit of truth, there also has to be a level of humility on the part of the uh, pursuer. And that was what Moshe Rabbeinu, it, to look in this case would mean to try to, to advance in his understanding beyond what he was ready for, rather than recognizing that, that uh, growth is a gradual process, that growth is something that happens step by step. And this is something that uh, that in every area is important. If a person is exercising and they try to lift the heaviest weights on the rack to start out, that's not going to work. They have to start gradually with lighter weights and then they build up to the heavier ones. And the same is true with any area of study. You start with simpler and then you build up to more difficult, more challenging, and then to the most challenging. And in every area, of course, the same is true. In every area of life and of growth, the same is true. So if we are trying to work on ourselves, we first work on the things that are the most accessible to change. And of course, there's a, we're so complicated as people and there's so much about us that needs to be addressed and, and, and worked on, improved, that uh, there's going to be a lot of work to do. But it, we start with the things that are the most accessible and and uh, amenable to uh, to change. Um, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu, recognizing as a human being that he can't have the ultimate knowledge yet. He has to re- limit himself. He has to restrict himself. He has to move at a slower pace. He covered his face. And so... The rabbis say, and, and as I mentioned, Maimonides, the Rambam, praises this teaching of the rabbis, po- po- points it out, and emphasizes it uh, a great deal that Moshe, covering his face out of humility, later on, because of that, his face glowed when he came down from Har Sinai, meaning precisely because. He was so humble at this stage of his development when he reached the pinnacle of his development, the highest level, he was able to get there because he was humble and he was gradual in the early stages and he didn't jump ahead to try to get the ultimate vision and the ultimate understanding too soon. As opposed to, let's say, Nadav and Avihu, or as opposed to the elders of Israel that it says at the end of Parashat Mishpatim, that they gazed upon Hashem, they tried to have some kind of a vision or understanding of Hashem that was beyond their ability at the time. They rushed ahead. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't rush ahead. He took things in stride and he limited himself and he went gradually and therefore he was able to reach greater heights as a result. Now, interestingly, you might say, well, what does that have to do with his general love of truth? Wouldn't a person who loved truth and who loved loved justice and loved truth, wouldn't they want to know the ultimate truth right away? Maybe they would want to, but they would realize, and this is part of the truth, say that we are limited creatures, that we are creatures that grow gradually, we are creatures that grow step by step. That's part of the truth. That's part of the reality. That's part of being honest, is recognizing that. And so Moshe Rabbeinu as somebody who loved truth, he didn't just love knowing the truth of the mysteries about the universe or the mysteries about Hashem, he also loved the truth about himself and recognized that as a human being, he would have to move a little bit more slowly and gradually to build up to the point of understanding that he would eventually reach. And so that's another point of truth and of uh, and of honesty, uh, honesty and truth um, in, in relation to ourselves, not overestimating ourselves. Of course, not underestimating because then we won't be motivated to grow, but not overestimating, which can burn us out and can lead to... Uh, uh, and, and can lead to superficial gains that are not really genuine, organic growth. So Be'ezrat Hashem, next week, we will continue with the story. I think this gives us a nice picture of Moshe Rabbeinu, what made him such a great leader. Um, his love of truth, his love of justice, his being, his hailing from a legacy of people who cared about truth and justice and were not willing to just accept things as that's the way they are, but also his understanding of himself and his humility. All of these qualities, come together to make Moshe Rabbeinu the person that, that he was and the leader that he was. Next week, we will be able to see the beginning of his uh, full mission uh, in the, the rolling out of the Makot and the confrontation with Paro. So, Be'ezu he you'll join us then for the continuation.